Welcome to the Bob Siegel Show podcast on the Cross Global Media Radio Network. Visit cgmradio.com slash bob to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. And welcome to the Bob Siegel Show, our theme, Christianity and its relationship to politics and pop culture. Always good to be joined twice a month by my co-host from Texas. Say hello to Jim Barrier. Hey, Oh, you even given Texas a plug. Uh, well, I'll take it. Everything I'll... about California gives Texas a plug <laughs> these days. <laughs> Boy, no kidding. I do love San Diego and I love the weather and the beaches, but I kind of like living in Texas where I've been for the last 30 plus years for some other reasons. Not for the consecutive string of days with triple digit weather that we're in the middle of right now, but I'll make the trade for that and a pretty decent economy and some pretty good leadership in our state government. And so, yeah, Jim Barrier from Texas. Here I am, (laughs) brought to you live. Hey, how you doing, Bob? I'm doing okay. How about you, Jim? You know, I'm doing great. And like I said, it is hot out here. And about a week and a half ago or so, we had a storm came through, and and I had golf ball-sized hailstones. Oh, I know. My son lives in Waco. They had damage to yeah. their roof and their car also. Yeah, yeah. we're getting a whole new roof, though, because we've got a good insurance company. But uh, that's one of the risks you take living out here. Of course, oh, they showed us some video. Roof. It looked like one of the plagues on Egypt from where we were sitting. Yeah, it was. It was brutal. But we don't have earthquakes, and so I'll take the trade. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, so, I, you know, I gave you a little heads up. I thought it would be interesting to talk about this topic tonight. I don't know about you, but I've had people over the years, as I share my faith and and interact with people who are not people of faith, we'll say, and they always, often they say this, well, the Bible's full of contradiction. You heard that one? (laughs) Well, as a Christian apologist, I hear that all the time, and usually it's because they're reading the Bible out of context, and that would be the context of the text, and very key, (laughs) the context of the culture and the context of the language. Absolutely. And, and it, you know, when I have people do that, if they, they make that statement, the first thing I say is, well, cite one for me. Tell me one of those contradictions. And that usually shuts up half the crowd. Now, there are people who, I don't know why, if you don't believe in God, why you would make such a big effort to go out of your way to disprove God. But they do sometimes. And so we're going to look at some of these supposed contradictions in the Bible. But first, I, I want to address this thing. And that is that we need to understand that there's a difference between a contradiction and a paradox. And here's a couple of definitions of what a paradox is. A paradox is a statement that seems impossible or is difficult to understand because it contains two opposite facts or characteristics. Another one is an argument that apparently derives self-contradictory conclusions by valid deduction from acceptable premises. So in other words, there are two things that are both true, but they seem to rub each other the wrong way. Here's a few paradoxes in the Bible. Corinthians says, we must become foolish so that we may become wise. And so how can you be foolish and wise at the same time? Right, and of course they're overlooking the fact that Paul also says the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. So people need to understand that how a word is used in context can change. And this is very true in the Bible. When you read the parable of the sower and the seed, the birds that came and ate the seeds, Jesus says the birds in this parable are Satan. Well, I don't assume that every time I read about birds in the Bible they're talking about Satan, (laughs) especially since Jesus compared himself to a mother hen who wanted to embrace Israel under her 
her weeks. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Okay, here's another one. When I am weak, then I am strong. That seems to be a contradiction. It's really a paradox. And I know you know where that one is from. It's when the apostle asked the Lord to remove a thorn in the flesh, he called it. Yes, and God and says, Lord, my strength has been made perfect in your weakness because it gives God yeah. a chance to be strong on behalf of Paul. There you go. So I'm weak, but I'm strong. So it's not a contradiction. It's a paradox. Here's a good one. Jesus said a couple of things. He said, whoever finds his life will lose it. Uh, the people in Jesus' day, some of his listeners, they were confused sometimes when he makes statements like this because they didn't understand the spiritual comparison he's making. And the uh, fact that there's going to be an afterlife. Somebody could deny Christ in this yeah. life and maybe be spared some government saying, deny Christ or we're going to execute you, which has happened often in history from Roman times yeah. onward. But that person will be alive in the kingdom of heaven, which is the ultimate life. Yes. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff that plays off that. You know, you must crucify yourself, take up your cross, and deny yourself, follow me, that kind of thing. And he's talking about dying to self so that you can live in spiritual life. Uh, and then similar, Jesus said, the first shall be last. So which is it? <laughs> I'm playing the part of the skeptic here, so I'm going to give you lots of room to, to respond. Well, and people here. also forget that teaching with riddles was a very common way in paradoxes and opposites. That was a very common Eastern teaching. Now, we also yeah. have the gospel which made its way out to the West. When you read a book like Romans, it's very Western and very linear. But Jesus taught in that Eastern style. You find your life, you lose it. You lose your life, you find yeah. it. And yeah, so people uh, just need to understand that was a common teaching style in those days, and it forced people to think things through for themselves. Yes. And the first shall be last. The one who is going to be last in this world, according to the world's economy and the power structures and all of the things that people are chasing after, will be the first in his kingdom. So be a servant. And that's not something that appeals to a lot of people. We want to be on top. We want to climb ladder. We want to be first. It's me first, me first. If you don't think that humanity has a me-first attitude, you've never driven an automobile. <laughs> yeah. By the way, Jim, did I ever tell you that I found a loophole for this one? This last shall be first, first shall be last? Oh, okay. Let okay, me so, okay, so we want to be first, right? So just go ahead and be first. But if you make yourself first, God views you as last. But once you're last, you're first. <laughs> I got it. Who's on first? I don't know. <laughs> Second phase. <laughs> Okay, so here's the thing I learned a long time ago. If two truths seem to be in opposition, they will resolve themselves in a higher truth. great example of this is the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is man. First John says, any spirit that doesn't confess that Jesus came in the flesh is not of God. Jesus was a man. He was born by Mary, and we, have, we celebrate Christmas every year, so Jesus was a man, and yet... It declares that Jesus is God. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And it says, the fullness of the deity dwelt in him. And so Jesus is a man, but Jesus is also God. The higher truth is, he's the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is uniquely the God-man. So the two truths resolve themselves in a higher truth, and you don't understand that truth apart from, I think, revelation from the Holy Spirit. It has to show that to you, but... It's one of the things that we embrace. In fact, it's one of the important things that I think we cannot compromise on. And, and many religious groups get off track because they don't want to try to deal with that. Can Jesus be God 
and still be a man. Well, and people and, also and need just, to understand it's not that eternally he was God-man. He was originally in the form of God, and we're told in Philippians he emptied himself of the form and power of God yes. and became yeah. a real human being. Then it was God's way of saying, I'm not going to ask you to do anything I'm not willing to do myself. So he became a human being to have empathy, to live our lives, to be in obedience to the other two persons of the Trinity. He earned the right after his death and resurrection to become God again, and God could have restored him to his original original form, but apparently, and this is just my guess, he stays in the form of a man for all of eternity to remind us of the eternal sacrifice he made on our behalf. Yeah, and we will certainly understand more after our resurrection. And John says that. He says, it doesn't appear what we'll be like, but we know this, we're going to be like him, and we will see him as he is. And then our eyes are going to be open. We're going to go, oh, that's what it is. So, that's paradoxes. Now, we're going to talk about some of the, I think, some of the more common contradictions that people quote out of the scriptures. This is something I rarely do, but I'm going to use the King James Bible for these examples, because this is what most people are familiar with when it comes to the theological Well, the King James Bible is an okay translation. It was just yeah. when it was translated into the old English, and they even have a newer English version of it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I heard a preacher one time, and he said he called it the majority text, because worldwide, at least up until fairly recently, that's been the popular Bible. Now, the NIV has certainly become very popular, and it's a big seller, but I'm going to use the King James just for the sake of these arguments. Some of this will be resolved when we look at the definition of words that were translated into King James, and what those words actually might be better translated in today's English. So... James says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But then you look over there in Genesis 22, and it says it came to pass that God did tempt Abraham. So if God doesn't tempt anyone, how did he tempt Abraham? Now, you being born Jewish, obviously, will have the answer to <laughs> Well, again, it gets back to the fact that the context is everything. Now, they're using a word there that could also translate as test. God tested Abraham. Now, when the Bible says God doesn't tempt us, it means God does not tempt us to do anything wrong. God does not tempt us yeah. to do anything sinful. What God was asking Abraham to do, Abraham understood was an okay thing to do, but it was a question of whether he was going to put his own son before God. And his willingness to put God first was his passing the test. So God is testing yes. Abraham's obedience. Satan will tempt us to do sin and evil. Thank you. And I wanted to mention earlier, when the people who compile these lists of contradictions in the Bible for whatever their their motive is. 90% of those that I have read have to do with numbers. For instance, one passage may say that David had a, this number of men in his army, and another one has a different number. And most of those, if you really want to get the truth, you dig in and you'll find out that there is a reason that there's a difference there. And it usually is, it's talking about a certain section or a portion of the army, things like that. Or, or sometimes, sometimes numbers a, were rounded out and other times a specific yeah, amount was yeah. given. So almost all of the contradictions that people cite have to do with that type of thing. And, and here's the thing that's significant. None of those things have any effect whatsoever on what the message of the Scripture is or what the gospel is or the truth of the Bible or the things it's telling us 
how we should live. They're nitpicking on things that really, if they wanted to know, they could dig in there and they could see, oh, that's why that's like that. So I wanted to point that out. So here comes another one. Now, we've talked about this on the show a few times in different topics. Number says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. And yet, in Genesis 6, says it repented the Lord that he had made man on earth. In Exodus 32, Moses intervenes because of the Lord. it says the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do to his people. He was going to wipe them out, and then he repented of that. First Samuel, it says the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. And then Jonah, my favorite book in the Old Testament, says God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do to them, meaning Nineveh, and he did it not. So you have passage after passage that says God repented, but yet number says that God should not repent. What's your take on that? Well, again, repentance is a word that's often used in association with sin. So God Mm -hmm. is not sinful. God never sins. So God never repents because he doesn't need to repent in that usage of the word repentance. Mm -hmm. But the way they're using it with Saul and the way they're using it with people in the days of Noah, God is regretting what they are doing. He's regretting having made Saul a king. Now, people could say, well, didn't God know ahead of time? It gets back again to how we look at time, because the Bible portrays God as being completely out of time. And I believe God is just seeing everything happen at one time. So he sees what Saul is doing while he's doing it. Now, if he wanted to, he could, before the creation of the world, say, okay, I know what Saul's going to do, so I'm just not going to create him. But he gave us free will. He wants to show the responsibility or irresponsibility of our free will for all of time and eternity to see, to see that his ways are just and that he had the right way and the right thing was to follow him all along. But it gets back to the fact that people are doing things that he regrets and he sees them doing it while they're doing it. It's not that he looks into a little crystal ball and they're going to do it someday. He sees it happening while it's happening. Yeah. And that's, I always say that, whatever, however, you know, I don't know the realm that God exists in on a personal level, because I'm not God, but he interacts with his creation in a way that we can relate to him. So he deals with us on a day-by-day, minute-by-minute process, because we're not infinite and eternal in that sense. We are not timeless. So he does interact with his creation in sequence of time. Now, the other thing about this repent is, it, even when we talk about man repenting, we talk about a change of heart. And God certainly can have a change of heart. What you said, he could say, well, I grieve now. I mean, Genesis 6 is powerful. I mean, he, it grieved God. And that's just six chapters into it after he said, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. But then he says it grieved him. So it's talking about what he's feeling in his heart. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, God does have emotions. Now, his are perfect, and he doesn't let his emotions run rampant like we do sometimes. But God does feel things. And so the change of heart, the repentance comes out of the heartbrokenness that he has sometimes over the way we behave. Okay, here's another one. In John 5, Jesus said, The Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. But then in chapter 12, he says, I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Well, if the Father committed all judgment to him, and he says, I do not come to judge the world. And I think this is semantics, by the way. Well, and it's... 
we have to take into account that he's coming twice. When he returns, he is going to judge the world the first time he came to save the world from judgment. That, that's the best answer. Folks, write that down, because that is exactly the solution to this conundrum. He came to the world to save it, but he is going to come back, and he is going to judge the world. Now, it'll be time for another show sometime. You know, Christians will be judged as well. We won't stand at the great white throne judgment and be judged for eternity, but we will be judged for how we lived our Christian life and how we represented him. So there will be a time when he comes to judge the world. Very good. Okay. Romans 3.10, we all know this. If you memorize the four spiritual laws or any kind of nifty little packet for witnessing, you know that there is none righteous, no, not one. Bob Dylan even wrote a song with that. There is none righteous, no, not one. Yet, in Job, the opening words of the story of Job says, there was a man in the land of Uz, not Oz, but Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright. So now what's the deal? If there's none righteous and a fall of sin, how could Job be perfect and upright? And once again, all we have to do is read all of Job, because one of the examples of Job being upright is that he made animal sacrifices to God. Well, what was the purpose of an animal sacrifice? The purpose of an animal sacrifice was to atone for your sin. Now, it's ultimately Jesus atoning for our sin, but this answers another question that people like to ask. If Jesus died for everybody's sins and we must accept Jesus, well, how were people judged before Jesus even came? Because God gave them a way of looking toward the cross. When the Bible talked about Job being perfect and upright, that meant he was doing everything that he possibly could that was responsible to do before God, but embedded in that, included in that, was the fact that he is a sinner needed to make atonement for himself, which again is ultimately Christ making the atonement. Yes, and that verse that I read was in Romans 3. Romans 4 makes it very clear that everyone is saved by faith. Even before the law, Abraham was saved by faith, and there was no Mosaic law yet, but he was saved by faith, and Job was saved by faith. Now also, that word perfect often means complete. Yes, and it means to be brought to maturity to achieve your purpose. Yes, and morally it would mean he had integrity, which is another great word because integrity means complete. We get the word integer, a whole number. And so Job had integrity, he was mature, he was complete, and he did offer sacrifices by faith, but it doesn't mean that he had no need for atonement. It doesn't mean that he was sinless. Now, Ephesians 2.8. Many, many evangelicals know this passage, and I'm going to read verse 2, 8, and verse 9 also. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's a popular one. And yet, over in James, and a lot of people have a problem with the book of James, because James says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? Uh Uh-oh. That really sounds like a contradiction. 
It sounds like a conundrum indeed, but James actually gives us the answer, and he uses Abraham as an example. Paul used Abraham yep. as an example also in Romans, yep. that promise was given to Abraham, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. James does not contradict that, but he looks at it from another angle. He says, faith without works is dead. The works don't save us, but if we put our faith in Christ, his spirit is going to change us, and works should be the byproduct. So the works are a barometer for whether we have the faith. And then he uses Abraham as the example. He believed God, but he demonstrated that belief by obeying God years later when God asked him to give up his son, which of course Abraham didn't want to do, but he obeyed God. And then God said, I was just testing you. And James says it right there. You see that his faith was proven by what he did in the works. So no, the works don't save us. And James wasn't trying to say that. But you take a verse of the Bible out of context, you could make it say anything. And that that's really what the issue is here. That's why I ask people to quote an example of a contradiction, because I want to say, see, first of all, if they even know the Bible, and then I'll say, do you know where that passage is found? Yeah, and, and it's usually found it on an atheist website on a list. That's usually yeah. where they found yeah. it, not in any kind of yeah. context. But I love to, if someone opens the door with something like that, I love to get the Bible out and say, well, let's look at that, and let's do the things we're supposed to do. Well, let's see who's talking who they're talking to, and why are they saying what they're saying. So when you do that, it almost eliminates most of the objections. But the whole thing right there is what you're saying. Works prove that we have faith. And that's what James is saying. He's not saying that the works save you. He's saying that the works are evident. They're the proof of your saving faith. And believe me, I think that's a valid thing because a lot of people, you know, they'd like to say, well, I'm saved You know, here's another thing I ask people when they say they're saved. I say, what are you saved from? And immediately they say hell. And I quote the scripture to them where it's in the Christmas story, and it says, call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Hell is a byproduct. Yeah, we're always emphasizing the consequences of the decision, and we shouldn't be doing that. If somebody said to us, is it wrong to murder, we wouldn't say, well, yeah, because if you do it, you're going to go to jail. No, we'd say it's wrong because it's evil. Now, if you don't care about being evil, we're going to put you in jail. Jail is the consequence, but evil is the reason we tell somebody not to commit murder. It's the same with giving our lives to Jesus. That is the right thing to do. That is the way to overcome our sins through his spirit, through his forgiveness. Now, if somebody doesn't care about that, yeah, there will be a consequence. The consequences of giving our life to Jesus will be an eternity in heaven or an eternity in hell. Heaven and hell are consequences. They are not the reasons we give our lives to Jesus. And you know, while you're honest, that's a really good topic. I've wanted to talk about this. I do a lot in in my uh, ministry, but there's a difference. There are two words. One is consequence and one is sanction. The sanction is the penalty the punishment for sin, the consequence is what it does. For instance, if you go out and get drunk and then get behind the wheel of a car, and now you're a drunk driver, you're driving under the influence, a DUI. The consequences for that might be you could kill somebody, you could kill yourself, you could have a wreck and destroy property. Those are consequences. But the punishment is you're probably going to go to jail, lose your license and both, and maybe pay a big fine. There's a difference between the punishment and then the consequence. And God is very concerned about the consequences that we bring upon ourselves if we don't live to his precepts. There is ultimately going to be punishment, but there's so much consequence involved in living disobediently or living in rebellion to God. And he's concerned about that because you can cause a lot of pain. I've talked to Christians for years, 50 years plus, 
And I'll hear people say, I don't know why God is doing this to me. And I'll say, you know, God isn't doing this to you. You're suffering consequences, sometimes because of your own bad choices. Sometimes you're the innocent bystander, but you're suffering consequences because of somebody else's bad choice. I knew a girl who was a quadriplegic, and she was that way because she was working in a grocery store, and someone came in, there was a robbery, and she was struck by a bullet in the spine and was paralyzed for the rest of her life. And I love this one because she said, people said, well, how do you think God is a loving God if he let that happen to you? And she said, God didn't do that. That was a selfish act by somebody else. And I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I'm suffering consequences because of somebody else's sin. But I'm not being punished for something that I did. And I don't believe that God was punishing me. I thought that was such a beautiful way to handle it. And she did that graciously because it changed her life forever. So... Difference between consequences and sanctions or punishments. I hope that makes sense. This is another one of those things that Jesus said, and people were often scratching their heads. You know, sometimes people left in droves because he'd say something that was just too hard. As you said, he would talk sometimes in parables and puzzles, and some of that was, I think, to sort out who was really seeking the truth and who had a good and honest heart for the seed of the Word of God to land in. Now, one of the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, honor thy father and thy mother. And there's more to that because it gives you a better life. But honor your father and your mother. And then Jesus says, if any man comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What do you have, Jesus? Are you saying we've got to break the Ten Commandments? What does he mean? Well, again, he's talking about a contrast. He's talking about being the priority. He means by comparison, and he's using very extreme hyperbole there. That's exactly what he was doing. He did that a number of times, but in this case, Jesus wasn't asking people to hate. No, and we have him as an example. His own mother, when she asked him to turn water into wine at a wedding, he said, this is before my time. My ministry hasn't commenced yet. I'm not yet going around doing miracles publicly. And she begged him to do it, and he still did it. Why? Because it was his mother asking him. So obviously family was very important to him. There's a lot of family dynamic. If you look at the story of Jesus in the early part, I love the story when they went on a caravan and he was 12, And I don't know, call CPS. They went off and left, and they left Jesus behind. And they came back and found him, and he's in the temple teaching the teachers. And his his, his mom kind of, you know, I'm sure she was frustrated. She said, how could you do this? This is a Jewish mother. How could you do this to me? (laughs) To your own mother. (laughs) Yeah. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house about my father's business? And so he didn't disrespect his mother and father But he already, at the age of 12, understood that his heavenly father was infinitely, and that's not an intended pun, he loved his heavenly father infinitely more than his earthly mother and father. And he's saying, we must do the same. If you're going to follow Jesus, there can be nothing, nothing that even comes close. And, you know, back to pop culture and music and stuff, sometimes in songs There will be lyrics about, you know, I I love you more than life itself. I love you more than anything. And that's in a romantic sense. But certainly in a devotional sense, spiritually, we should love God so much that would almost look like from another point of view that we hate everything else. I have disdain for this world. I don't care about anything or anybody else when it comes to 
how important Jesus is to me. And I think that that needs to be reiterated. That needs to be preached more than it has been in recent decades. There can't be a close second. It can't be Jesus and this or that. It can't be, well, I love God, but I also love this other thing. No, when it comes down to it, your love for anything else must pale in comparison to your love for God and your desire to follow Jesus. And so that's the last of my contradictions, though I I would like to say this, and I I learned this from our friend Winky Prattney. It's an old thing he's been saying that he says, there are, in fact, contradictions in the Bible. The Bible contradicts sin. It contradicts (laughs) selfishness. Good point. It contradicts pride, the world, the devil, and our way of doing things. So it does contradict things. (laughs) Well, and we also have things in the Bible that we're just not going to understand, like the Trinity. How can God be three? Yeah, yeah and also be one. And yet, the concept of being more than one and one is not foreign to science or even genetics. Look at identical triplets. They were once one cell, that cell split with an identical 23 pairs of chromosomes. You could say they're the same person, but they're obviously three completely different people at the same time. Now, I'm not saying that that explains the Trinity. I'm just saying the idea of being multiple person and one person is not foreign to science. No. Oh, well, H2O, you have water can be liquid, it can be frozen in a solid and be ice, or it can be a gas, can be a vapor, steam. So H2O can be three things. And, it, and exactly, they say there's a point where ice melts and evaporates and it's instantaneous and for some whatever fraction of a second, it's liquid, solid, and gas all at once. And it is, it's a parable, it's a comparison, but it helps us to understand, you know, there are great mysteries in life, in this universe. And if God didn't have some mysteries and we could figure out everything about God, he wouldn't be much of a God. Yeah, exactly. Frankly, folks, there are some things we will never understand in this lifetime. And if someone comes along your way and says they have all the answers and they know everything, they can answer every question, they understand all mysteries and things like that, they've either been smoking something or they're trying to scam you. There's only one person in history who was there for every historical event, and that was Joe Biden. Nobody else even qualifies. He was there when they signed the Declaration of Independence. He was there visiting Nelson Mandela. He was there when they landed on the moon. That was Joe. Good old Joe. Yeah. Yeah. Who was the guy, Brian? The reporter that was always saying stuff that he I can't remember now. But yeah, Joe, and the truth is, he, he may be old enough to have seen a, a number of those things, whether he could remember. He is old enough to have done hot. some of those things, but that doesn't mean he did them. No, and I think sometimes his memory is a little fuzzy, a little fuzzy. We'll do another show about Uncle Joe. We've talked about him a lot. But the truth is, none of us are capable of knowing everything. Why? One, because we're finite, not infinite. And two, more importantly, we are broken. We are fallen. And so we see in a mirror differently. We grasp what we can. We find understanding. We pray and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal things to us. We read the scriptures, and we should read the scriptures diligently. And even with all of that, the smartest people I know, the best people I know, the most spiritual, moral, wonderful people that I know, if they're honest, and those kind of people usually are, they'll say, there's a lot of stuff I don't understand. But I believe in God. What does it say? If you believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, and God raised him from the dead, and confess with your mouth, you shall be saved. And that's the capsule, the nutshell. Believe in him and confess that, that you believe that, and that will get you started. 
and it'll actually sustain you. I have served God now for 55 years. That's an amazing thing to think of, that I've followed Jesus for 55 years. And the very basic truths, the simple truths, the profound truths, the deep truths have not changed. People come along with objections. You know, I have people all the time, they say, I have questions, and I'll say, you know what? Bring me your questions, and if I don't know the answer, you and I are going to sit down and we're going to try to find an answer to your questions. All I ask is that you be honest and sincere and open to the truth, whatever it requires of you. And I think the real problem that people have, that they say there's contradictions and they question the scriptures and all of that, is not because they have evidence of that. It's because if the Bible is true, I'm in a big world of hurt. And so I'm going to try to find a loophole and say, well, I don't believe the Bible because it's not reliable and it's got all these contradictions. And they're trying to get out of the moral accountability that comes from Absolutely. reading and understanding. The Often they ask yeah. questions and they would be very disappointed if there was an answer because then they would be without excuse. Well, Jim, it's always a pleasure having you. We'll have you on again next awesome. month. Yep, I will be here. All right. This is Bob Siegel making the obvious obvious. Bob Siegel Show podcast is a production of Bob Siegel and Cross Global Media. Visit us online and subscribe to the show at cgmradio.com slash bob.